Hub, and Spoke. Audio Collective. to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. There's a lot to be sad, stressed, and upset about in the world right now. It's important to give those things our focus and attention and action. But we also need to take the time to appreciate the world around us, the precious, beautiful, strange planet we call home. It is easy to be discouraged, and the news cycle, unfortunately, does provide us with so many minor tragedies. Every lost kitten and every abused orphan in the world is now on my inbox, it seems like. But if we stand back a little bit, there is still all wonder, beauty, and try as hard as humans might. We haven't wrecked the planet completely. We're trying our darndest to wreck that planet, but here it is still thriving despite everything we have done. So I do come into the narrative with a little bit of optimism. And even if I have private pessimism at times, nobody needs to endure that with me. That's my own private problem to deal with. And night especially means possibility, hope, joy. Because the night is unknown, By definition, every single thing we see is going to be a surprise. I've reached the point where I'm not afraid to be out at night, and I know the right appropriate tools, so I might have an infrared imager with me, depending on what I'm doing, or a couple of spotlights. But I'm happy just to walk by moonlight or even starlight and let the night be the night. And you're going to smell something fabulous. You're going to see something fabulous. There'll be a star. There'll be a deer. There'll be something happening. There'll be a moth. There'll be a bat. And you never know quite what it's going to be, other than it's going to be fabulous, interesting, a gift when it happens. And I'm happy. I'm always happy at night. I'm Charles Hood, and I recently published a book called Nocturnalia, Nature in the Western Night. Nocturnalia is actually a made-up word by Charles's publisher to help snazz up the original title of the book. It's a play on the idea of Bacchanalia, the Roman festival of the god Bacchus. You know, the idea of wine and springtime and joyfulness and fornication. Well, nocturnalia would be a celebration of the nighttime. And what a great idea. So it's nocturnalia, the joy of night. Nocturnalia, Nature in the Western Night, is co-written and photographed by naturalist Charles Hood and bat biologist Jose Gabriel Martinez Fonseca. Jose Gabriel is a Nicaraguan biologist, and he got to be famous inside of Nicaragua because he caught the yapuk barehanded. Now, Y-A-P-O-K, yapuk. It's a water possum. It's black and white, and it lives in rivers in the jungles. It's fabulous. It's kind of like a golem-looking thing. And he was on a boat with some visiting American biologists, and there was a yapuk. You know, no one's ever seen one. Like, it was really great. Like, oh, my God, there's a yapuk over there. And he goes, do you want it? And they go, yes, we want to see the yapuk. He jumps off the boat in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the river, and swims and thrashes and grabs it and brings the yapuk back to the boat. Says, here, you want to see it? Here it is. Here's the yapuk. And so his reputation just began to grow, the yapuk catcher. And then, I, so I knew who he was, but I was on a boat in the Amazon, a mammal trip, 
and he had come along to catch bats for us. And we were talking at the table. Go, oh, Jose, grab me. Oh, I'm so glad to meet you. I've heard all about you. And it turned out he takes great pictures of bats. One thing led to another, and Charles and Jose bonded over their mutual curiosity and love of exploring and studying the natural world, and their shared desire to combat misperceptions about bats. We want to portray bats in a much more welcoming, warm-hearted, aren't-they-cool kind of perspective as opposed to the blood-drenched fangs of Dracula and Halloween and all that kind of stuff. One very effective way to destigmatize bats is to present photographs of them in action in the real world. You know, not turning into vampires and drinking human blood. What began as an effort to portray these maligned nocturnal mammals in a more flattering and accurate light expanded to encompass nature at night in general. So we see this book as a photographic introduction to nature at night as much as it is a biological one or even a literary one. So one thing led to another, and we've done a night book. And I would describe it as an invitation to set aside our prejudice and fear. It just has been my experience that people speak about things that we don't know in often prejudicial terms. And darkness, blackness, otherness, collectively in North American society, really get portrayed in menacing kinds of terms. And we're encouraged to be fearful at night and to deadbolt the door and to turn on a security light. And if someone knocks, you better not answer it, you know. And therefore, by association, people who are out at night, whether they're, you know, people who just enjoy going to a bar or whether they've got employment reasons or whether they look like the night, people of color, somehow they're all collectively, you know, sort of put off in this bad category of witches and werewolves. And I just find that a little bit limiting and a little bit frustrating when in reality, nature is here 24 hours a day. And if we ignore nighttime nature, we're ignoring half of all of nature. So I think of the book less as a tour of botany, although that's in there and astronomy, that's in there, as, a, as an invitation just to set aside our fear and examine where that fear came from and give ourselves permission to be a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more happy all day long. So tonight we're here at Tilden Park in the hills above Berkeley to experience some nocturnalia in the form of a guided night walk. The walk is a joint event between an organization called Wide Awake and Heyday Books, the publisher of Nocturnalia. Billed as a symphony of night, the idea was that Charles and Jose would lead us around a small lake here in the park and help us all experience the wonders of night in this place. But Jose has COVID and Charles is running late. It's okay because it's beautiful and quiet and the sky is beginning to darken in that way that makes all the colors somehow more muted but more rich and intense at the same time. We're surrounded by the loamy scent of earth and evergreens, and the birdsong of dusk is bouncing around above us, and the chorus of frogs is ever so slowly blooming into an ambient drone that signals to our primal brains that everything is about to change. I'd like to channel my inner Mr. Rogers here and invite you to come along. Maybe close your eyes and join us on this little nocturnal ramble in the hills above where I live. It's just a normal place, but there is so much to notice in the darkness. Here we go. We're just waiting for um, a few more folks and our co-host. <laughs> One of our co-hosts got COVID, so we'll not be here, but Charles will still be here. Constantly getting distracted by the way. It's like, oh, yeah. like I really want. Like really Hello, welcome, hey. Charles. Thank you. <laughs> 
I already feel like I'm in the wilderness. We haven't even left the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say like I saw a bobcat on the way in, but I haven't yet. But it was waiting to happen, I can tell. <laughs> nice and warm. Good yeah. for bats. It's that time of night. So I'm going to get the detector on. Hello, Thank you for joining welcome. us. Hello. You guys here for the night walk? There are about 25 of us standing in the parking lot in our down jackets, fleeces, and hats, many of us wearing headlamps. There's still a little bit of daylight, but it's fading fast. So what I've done, you can see on the face of my iPhone, this, the orange part is a plug-in microphone, and it's talking to some software in there. And it's early enough, we would actually see bats flying by, probably, but then again, we get distracted. So it's listening for things outside of the range of human hearing because the bats are echolocating in order to catch the moths. And each bat echolocates at a specific frequency. I could tape record the bats and confirm on a computer later, but the machine's gonna say, hey, by the way, we think it's a such and such. And I can agree or disagree as I wish. Uh, you wouldn't wanna rely on it all the time, but here in California, the most common things we would expect, it's the little magic software is pretty dialed in on on some of the things. And it's a little late in the season for bats, but it was a warm day. Uh, termites have been swarming. Someone told me there were a lot of uh, moths out in Mendocino two nights ago. So it's a possibility, certainly not a guarantee, but certainly a possibility. So here in the park, uh, first thing I want to see this time of night would be what we used to call Western Pipistrels. Now they've been renamed Canyon Bat. And they're really dinky little things, brown, kind of cute. And they have kind of a butterfly-like little flight, kind of zippity-zippity, fluttering around. And they don't, they don't mind. Like, it's perfectly dark for them. They don't mind being out this early. As it gets a little bit darker, then we begin to pick up some of the little more skittish stuff. Uh, because the lake's right here, so one thing that would be feeding uh, right on the surface of the lake would be Yuma myotis, M-Y-O-T-I-S. Myotis is a pretty complicated international group of species, a little confusion among the taxonomists what to do with it, but Yuma myotis, named after Yuma, Arizona, named after the Colorado River, they really, 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 really like feeding on ponds, and they are definitely here in the park, they're definitely here in the Bay Area, uh, whether we're going to pick up any on the detector or not, and they've probably been roosting, you know, up in the hills more, they're going to be coming, commuting, you know, they didn't roost on the lake in a little boat or something, like, they're going to be commuting from the roosting spots, and so we might pick them up as they pass over our heads, and then we have a couple other options here, it could be some hoary bats, uh, Mexican free trail bat. So, thank you for joining us. Uh, it is sort of startish time. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, what's happening? Let's do it. Maybe we can all form like a little cozy circle, taking a couple steps um, because this is our night crew tonight. Um, my name is Sophie, and I co-founded Bald Awake about two and a half years ago now, um, and uh, we founded it because we had this hypothesis and theory that awe and wonder were these feelings that we wanted to design for and that were enough um, of feelings that we could bring into learning experiences in schools and with adults. And it turns out, if you guys know the Greater Good Science Center in Berkeley, they actually have done a bunch of research on awe and have shown that awe can actually lead to pro-social behaviors, so people taking care of each other, and people also thinking more about their environment and taking care of land. And so really awe can be this super radical thing, and I think that we can access awe when we are centered in our bodies, receptive, listening to each other, and just making that kind of space. 
So I thought it would be nice to just go around and do some intros. We could start with our name, share your pronouns if you'd like. We all go around and introduce ourselves and say something about our relationship to the night. Charles starts us off. And I think maybe we'll start this way and go around. You're feeling ready. Sure. Hi, thanks for coming and joining me and Jose. Jose's right here. Uh, Jose Gabriel Martinez Fonseca, Dr. Martinez Fonseca, is home in, in Flagstaff with COVID as of this morning. He has spent a whole heck of a lot of time up here catching herps, meaning reptiles, amphibians, with his wife, soon to be Dr. Aaron, who is a herpetologist in training, so to speak, and he's he's interested in herps, bats, small mammals, and then my thing was birds once upon a time, but I kind of abandoned that to become a, a mammal, mammal-watching guy in and, in and around, so I've actually reached this really stupid, stupid plateau. I'm in the 1,000 Club, and there's like six of us who have spent so much effing money to go and see every little rat and mouse and bat, you know. So like, like, uh, like I've like 1,000th mammal was in Madagascar, Crossley's dwarf lemur up in this tree, you know, like I'm doing the little happy dance and all the sweats pouring off my body. Next, we do something that you may or may not be familiar with, honoring the native people who inhabited this land before us. Um, right now we're on Chichenyo Ohlone land. And so I like to just do three breaths together as a group to just honor that and like come into the space and be in this space of receptivity and like honoring. So go ahead and close your eyes if you feel comfortable. You can find a stable spot on the ground. And just take a few moments to listen. The sounds that you can hear. And remember that all of these sounds that we can hear today are here because Native people of this land have tended to this land and allowed these beings to continue to thrive. And so all of these sounds are also in some ways a portal into the past. Let's take one big deep breath in together to honor that. Big exhale out. And we'll do that two more times this time. Thinking about the soundscape that you want your future kin to be able to inherit. What kind of sounds do you want to still be alive in the future? And resting in that place. Taking a big deep breath in. Big deep breath out. And attuning to the sounds of now. Now is always changing. Take one last big deep breath in. And one last big deep breath out. And just in the space of those few breaths, the world of night begins to reveal itself to us. I don't know if you heard this chittering. We've had, according to the magic box, a really rare visitor tonight. Big, pocketed, free-tailed bat. (laughs) 
maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then the more of the nest can free tail bat, as long as it's a big pocketed free tail bat. And then an owl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that fabulous? Like, we, we've only been in the parking lot 10 minutes and we've already had four species of bats and an owl and a little guided history lesson about who are our caretakers of the landscape before us. So I feel like. A, this proves that the book is right. <laughs> I just say, just got it. You don't have to go far. Just go a quarter mile from the car. Only you don't have to leave the car at this point. We all could have stayed. stayed it's the parking lot. This is the lock. But as many of you know, as experienced nocturnal ramblers, most of the people are home by now or on the freeway right now, and there more and more people will be exiting the park, leaving the rest of the nature for us, which I just think is one of the magical things about being out at night. That it all belongs to us. We're like the kings of Versailles. <laughs> we have this entire Tilden Park just for us here. And as you can hear, things are really welcoming us. I think there were robins. I, I don't know that for sure. And then there were some scrub jays kind of going in, just kind of settling down for the night, kind of sharing a little bit of information. And then uh, Boobo Virginianos, the great horned owl, we could hear kind of sounded like it was coming off that way a little bit. When we come together tonight, we're actually joining two threads of the Western European tradition without really kind of consciously doing it, but we are. So we know the classical, you know, the Enlightenment was studying and reason and laws of physics, and then the Romantics came along, so Beethoven and music or William Blake and poetry, and the Romantics were really about accessing the sublime through nature, really not worrying about the rules or the conditions, and really your subjective experience was enough. And I love the idea that you talk about awe as something that's still part of the contemporary human experience. And really, an archetypal moment of awe would be in a clear sky environment, not so much Berkeley, but that idea that you're looking out at those thousands and thousands of stars, even on a moonlit night, but especially on a moonless night, this immense disk of the universe that we're looking out into at the, through the solar system. And there's actually a term, zodiacal light. We know what the Milky Way is. In a really, 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 really dark sky environment, we can actually see the particles of dust between us and Mars at night. It's called zodiacal light. You're actually looking out at kind of the edge of the of this sort of disk that we're in. So the Milky Way is kind of crossing this way, and depending where you are, the usually the zodiacal light's at a little different angle. And it's a very faint sparkling white. And these grains of dust are about a quarter of the size of a grain of sand on the beach. We're talking incredibly minute particles that you can see with your human eyes in a dark, 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 dark sky environment called zodiacal light. And I think that induces awe. The humans have gotten to know each other a little bit. We're letting our eyes adjust to the encroaching darkness. Charles has set the context, and we're almost ready to embark upon a small but enchanting journey around Lake Anza and the Berkeley Hills. Are we hearing only cicadas, or are we hearing tree frogs? Anyone want to help me out? I think it's frogs. You think we're hearing tree frogs? All that background static, isn't that all tree frogs? Are we kind of in a consensus on this? Again, I'm out of my home environment when I'm up this far north. And are any of those cicadas? It's too cold, right? Yeah. It's too late. So then I'm hearing that the consensus among our collective wisdom is that we're hearing a whole heck of a lot of frogs. All I can tell you is I can't show you the frogs because every time I try to, you know, they'll, they'll quiet down. We go into the bushes and the poison oak and then they're going to quiet on down. So we're not going to be able to. So we're, we're talking about an animal about the size of a silver dollar. Uh, it can be brown or green here, two different color phases. So sometimes called chorus frogs, sometimes called tree frogs. 
Charles offers up extra flashlights and primes us to be on the lookout for anything that sparks our curiosity. His enthusiasm is totally infectious. All right, anyone need a flashlight? Raise your hand. You do. All right. Sure, I brought extras. So we're looking for everything. Um, I know for sure salamanders, meat, snakes, frogs, raccoons, uh, western screech owl, which will be kind of a, a bouncing ball kind of uh, sound, um, skunks, possums. I've turned the bat detector off because I don't like having my phone out. But, uh, we have demonstrated that the bats are here. They were all feeding up so high. Uh, we're not going to ever see them. So let's go for a walk. We head down a narrow dirt path with tall conifers and deciduous trees on either side. It's November, so there are dried leaves crunching beneath our feet. The lake is close by on our right. Nocturnal animals typically have a reflector part built into their eye, and so when I shine a bright light, it catches the eye shine. And if I'm shining the light and you see two little glowing embers looking back at us and I miss it, be sure I get on it. And we're, you know, this is the time of night when we could expect coyotes foraging along the far shore. I'm also looking for owls. So I just flick the light back and forth and up and down. And it doesn't harm the animals uh, any more than, like, some car with their headlights on bugs you like at four in the afternoon. Like it's really, they're, they're so night adaptive that one little light for me doesn't, doesn't really shine as bright as it seems like to us. Within minutes, we realize we're being watched by a coyote. <laughs> that is so cool. Now we're all, all of 100 meters from the parking lot. <laughs> Coyotes are so happy that we have come along and killed the wolves, killed the grizzly bears. Like they're just dancing. Which every time we see a bear, look, they're the people that killed the wolves for us. This is fabulous. <laughs> Next, we cross a footbridge over a small stream. been trained to be fearful and some of it makes sense as early primates all the other great apes spend the night in trees with the exception of gorillas will spend the night on the ground if they're kind of confident what do we got where's those bats yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, bats can either eat 600 mosquitoes an hour or a thousand depending which which uh, reference you take so the other great apes all spend the night in the trees and Gorillas usually do, but they also can be on the ground. However, once humans moved into being fire capacity animals, we were able to move across the savanna. Some, you know, theories that also we could sleep in stages, and so some people could watch, some people could sleep, and then make it up during the day. But in any case, no matter what we did as we left kind of our, our ancestry of the other primates, we got really good at navigating the dark. And if we weren't good at navigating the dark, we would have gone extinct long ago. <laughs> and so America in particular has a security industry uh, 
that is trying to convince us we need porch lights, security lights, a parking lot at a mall needs to be lit all night long in case the asphalt gets lonely, you know? <laughs> and so we just overlight the F out of the entire planet when we don't need to. And if we only let our eyes adapt and if we only kind of get a little more confident about our footing, by golly, you can hike by moonlight. There is gonna be a moon tonight, you know, depending on what the fog does to it. And certainly you can hike by half a moon and you actually can hike by starlight once you get night adapted and kind of get your feet under you. And I appreciate that by gender, we have a little bit of a different interaction with the nighttime. And I am aware that uh, sexual assault is on people's minds. I am aware, of course, people of color interact with law enforcement differently after dark. I've been stopped by many, many police, and I can tell you they can be perfectly rude to me too. But as a tall white guy with academic credentials, I'm not likely to be shot by the police. And that's just being factually correct. However, I also will say, you know, I've been out lots of times at night. My friends have been out lots of times at night. Nobody I know has been bitten by a snake. Uh, the one puma was running in front of the car and you know, kept on going. Uh, and so the fearfulness that some of us or the apprehension we have has been reinforced by social rules or social ideas. Uh, only bad people are out at night or only immoral people stay up late at night. We have to sort of apologize if you're out late at night. You know, good industrious people sleep during the night and get up early in the morning, eat their oatmeal and go jogging and go to work. Well, you know, I look around at all of us. You don't look like really nefarious people who are doing bad things, but some of you stay up at night because that's just your circadian rhythm. And humans are actually quite good at walking around at night, as I hope to prove tonight. So if some of us have our lights on, that's great. I've got mine off most of the time until we see some animals. Uh, and I'm hoping that one of the goals tonight is we can just enjoy each other's company. We can learn a little bit about nature, but also get a sense that if you're not a regular hiker at night, how easy it is to do and some of the kind of pleasures that are doing. I'm just pausing for a moment just to enjoy the different senses of what it feels like out here. It's an interesting movement of air, isn't there? There's some cold air coming down canyon. It feels like it's flowing about five or ten feet over this dam and kind of dropping on down if I'm feeling the sensations right. So do uh, bats typically, I've seen them like flying over like lakes. They're feeding pools. on mosquitoes, right? I mm -hmm. assume. They actually, they, they are and they're also drinking. So oh, okay. bats do need to drink water. Uh, they're not like kangaroo rats or something that can be mm. Uh, self-sustaining just off of their prey only mm -hmm. and so water is a great place to look for bats and this is the lake that I said almost certainly has Yuma myotis passing through but some of the uh, you know earlier we heard Mexican free tail bats on the on the bat recorder they can fly up as high as 10,000 feet Whoa. <laughs> and they That's can fly amazing. yes it, it is incredible and they can fly 100 miles an hour in a sprint they can Whoa. routinely fly 60 miles an hour how many so they are the fastest thing out here once the peregrine falcons go to bed. <laughs> um, how do the bats drink? Like, do they just, you know... They drink on the wing, and so they, like, yeah. like a round pond that's small won't do them any good. They need an oval, like even bigger than a horse oh. trough. And so they come, they're coming down and literally dipping down and dragging their lower jaw through the water and snapping it oh, shut. Cool. And then And then picking back up. That's um, awesome. There's a nice picture of a bat drinking that's, that's, that's in the Nocturnalia book at the start mm -hmm. of the bat chapter. And we are in a good state for bats, as I mentioned earlier, about 25 species discovered in the state, roughly speaking. And don't quote me, but about 14 species up here in the Bay Area. Uh, 1,472 species of bats in the world. So if you like bats, you've come to the right planet. We're very, we're good on bats in this, in this planet Earth of ours. So bats are around us. We saw that earlier tonight, and bats are easy to see. Bats can see, they don't get in your hair. 
they don't have rabies any more than anything else can have rabies. So that's that's the myth. So we want to be sure everyone's safe. Something's over here. I can just make out something rustling in the bushes. Right there, right there, right there. What's it's a deer. Oh, it's a big buck. Okay. Yeah. We catch sight of a nice set of antlers and then have some more natural history lesson from Charles. Charles has interesting information to share about almost everything we see in here. So that's the black-tailed race of mule deer. <laughs> and some people think it's its own species, although probably it isn't. And that buck was coming into its antler phase. They will drop their antlers in another few weeks. Yeah. And they have chipmunks and wood rats are going to nibble on them and get calcium out of them. People that collect the antlers and sell them or put them on their mantle are actually high Got something? Oh. It's a lichen that's fluorescing, and I don't know the biology of that, but I know a story about it. So in North America, we have three flying squirrels. They sort of glide tree to tree. They're small. Humboldt flying squirrel here in California. And lichenologists were out looking for lichen the way we just did with their UV light and they discovered that the flying squirrels fluoresce at night. So we have glow-in-the-dark squirrels, and then they began checking specimens, and we have platypuses glow-in-the-dark, the same way this little lichen is, and no one knows why. There's some theories about how they're, you know, they're nocturnal, so maybe some advantageousness for, uh, you know, getting vitamin D or something, and glowing lichen help people find out that there are glowing squirrels and the glowing squirrels adds the bigger question mark of what else glows at night that's mammalian and there again there's another dissertation waiting to happen for those of us who plan to go back for your second third and fourth degrees No 747 flying anymore, so that, that's an easy one. <laughs> so I just wanted to check in with everybody. Uh, we are approaching true nighttime at this point. Uh, legally, there are distinctions between civil twilight and nautical twilight uh, necessary for things like the start of the hunting evening. You know, when does hunting season start, and when do lights have to be on an airplane? These kind of things. But it's getting dark-ish. Are we okay? Anyone feeling like you need a brighter light or you want us to go faster, slower? Uh, vocalize if you're unhappy in any way that we could accommodate. Uh, for a large group coming to a park where I haven't been in about 80,000 years, we're doing pretty well tonight, it seems <laughs> to me. Uh, we're having some nice times. I certainly enjoy feeling the different pockets of air on my face. Mm -hmm. I'm not smelling as much as I'd hoped to smell, but that could just be me. Maybe I'm not attuned to the subtleties of the soil. It, it smells like nature. It doesn't smell like Walmart anyway. That's a, that's a step up in my life. Uh, but I thought we might get some different smells. If someone notices something, like some particularly aromatic fungi or something, let us know. And while we kind of just spend a moment collecting our thoughts and our energy before we go on a little bit more of a walk, anyone have another night-related question? Bats, deer? fungi, something that I can either answer or make up. What do fungi do at night? There are 
80 species of glow-in-the-dark fungi worldwide, and that's probably a significant undercount. And I think that looks like rubbish to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the question is, why do fungi want to glow? And the answer probably is either they're very toxic and they want to kind of keep from getting nibbled. You know, lots of things like to eat fungi, lots of voles and squirrels. But also they may be trying to attract nocturnal insects so they can have assistance in being pollinated. Uh, we won't see any glow-in-the-dark fungi tonight, but there are places in Australia and New Zealand where they're actually pretty easy to see, pretty common. So we're going to follow our guide. So far we haven't, no one's died. Or... <laughs> so press on. The, the question is, what are fungi using to glow in the dark? And it's the same chemical that is inside of fireflies. Oh, okay. But I can't tell you the chemical name without Googling it. Uh -huh. But it's the same compound. True darkness does arrive, and I'm trying to walk without my headlamp on so my eyes adjust. But there are rocks and tree roots in the path, and a small section with a several-foot drop-off into the lake, so I turn it back on. Someone spots a spider on its web and stops to take a picture. We spend a little time looking at the stars. We spot some bats. You find something good? I saw that. Yeah. Fly by. I know. I put the recorder away, but they're they're going to be out. Mm -hmm. They might take a little pause around the middle of the night, but they're going to be out for the next couple of hours. We can hear some bats in the human range, but typically if you want to hear a bat, you need to be a young woman, age 16 to 25. Uh, just the way human bodies are designed, they have the best hearing and they can hear the, hear the low end of bats. Uh, to be heard by the worst hearing are for old men that have been to a lot of rock concerts. <laughs> We're pretty much doomed for any, any bat activity. <laughs> yeah, in the background of that. Yeah. Kind of almost like a siren. Like, oh. I thought it was kids. No, uh, I think I think the consensus is those are definitely things. We've seen some stars right now, so I feel like, to be honest, coming up today, I was wondering how many stars we could even see on this hike. So I feel a little bit encouraged. None of us have been eaten by a puma. We've seen a star. We saw a deer. I'm having a nice time. <laughs> Beats checking my Apple News feed, which I probably would have done during dinner otherwise, so I'd much rather be with you all. And that backing up truck. <laughs> Getting kind of close to the end. We've almost made it back without being eaten by a puma, in Charles's words. And he has one last story for us. So I think we're all I'm going to tell another story about night. This is one that many of us may not know. So right now, night is happening in the ocean in a really interesting way. So sunlight's at the top, phytoplankton's at the top, they need to use the sunlight. But if we're a fish, well, if we're a little zooplankton, we don't want to be at the top because then something else is going to eat us, and we don't want to be the fish eating the zooplankton because something else is going to eat us. So a large quantity of biomass is hiding down, let's say, 300 meters down, you know, 1,000 foot level, where it's dark and kind of pretty stable, pretty secure. 
and then all the phytoplankton are up to the surface, you know, 24 hours a day. So at night, there's this massive migration from the depths of the ocean up to the surface. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking trillions and trillions and trillions of organisms, many quite small, but then of course the food chain being the food chain, you know, the smaller fish and then the larger fish. So a lot of the dolphins that we think of as diurnal here in California, like you've gone out on a whale watching trip out of Monterey, you've seen a Rizzo's dolphin, these ones that are kind of whitish from the scarring or Sometimes called a grampus, and they're frolicking around doing their dolphin y thing and leaping and, and socializing. Oh, dolphins, they have such a happy life. They never really have to do anything. They just sort of hang around looking cool and having fun with each other. <laughs> and really, what they're doing is saying, hey, we have been feeding all night and we were so successful that we could just lounge around all during, you know, feeding during the day. Who cares? So, they are these Rizzo's dolphins from, from the California coast are feeding on nocturnal squid that are part of this immense migration up to the surface. And then, as the sun rises, then everything slowly makes its way back down a thousand feet. So, this is all the oceans of the world, everything going up and down in this great slow motion elevator. So, it's about the time of night, everything should be up in the surface now to Monterey Bay. I just love that idea that this immense quantity of life is moving up and then moving down, unseen by us, unmolested by us, just doing its thing. And out there too are the fur seals and the dolphins eating the squid that are following the zooplankton that are coming up to the phytoplankton at the surface. Dolphins are echolocating and so they're catching fish, whether they glow or not. Of course, a dolphin can hunt in the dark because it's echolocating to hunt. Mm -hmm. And so the Dolphins off the California coast are nocturnal feeders, not all of them, but mm. the classic Rizzo's dolphin. We see them during the day and we think, oh, what a happy dolphin. And of course they are happy, but we're not thinking about what they do at nighttime because we just don't. We've arrived back at the little bridge and cross over the stream. Charles has filled us in about the moons of Jupiter. Apparently there are around 90 of them. And we've learned even more about bats. All right, we're kind of nearing the end of our little excursion, so I wanted everyone to have a chance to ask a final question or make an observation or tell us a haiku. <laughs> uh, the book Nocturnalia came out yesterday, so you're getting, the fr they're really fresh. You know, I can smell that minty freshness right from the, right from the printer ink. I had a haiku. All right. All right. In the darkness comes activation of senses. Smell, touch, hear, see, feel. That is so good. That is so fun. That is lovely. Thank you for sharing that. All right, thank you all. We're going to wander back. We all say goodbye in the parking lot, and most everyone gets in their cars and drives home. Charles and I stay behind. We sit on a bench beside a big field in the dark and talk some more. I tell him about another new word about the night that I recently learned, noctalgia, which is kind of the opposite of nocturnalia. Noctalgia is the grief that astronomers and others feel about the continuing loss of the visible night sky. I think I have some of that. You know, I can see why people want to grieve, and grieving is a normal human emotion. But even here we are, we're just coming out of a night walk in Berkeley, and there are stars, and there were planets, and glow-in-the-dark lichen. And we did get to hear the owl, and we did have some fun smells and, and some fun sounds, even if we weren't always sure what was causing them. There was a screech owl earlier, I'm pretty sure. 
I don't know. I just think that's better than being here during the day, or at least equally valid. During the day, there'd be a thousand people here, and then you know that there's a thousand people, there's going to be a hundred phones and a hundred hundred one boom boxes, and there's going to be a lot of cars. You know, as the evening has progressed, things have gotten much quieter, and those background sounds from the other humans have pretty much diminished. There's one airplane going across right now, but it doesn't bother me. You know, I understand why airplanes exist. So the night is a time when we can get centered as people. We can learn about our environment in a different kind of way. We can see things that we wouldn't normally see. So that seems to me a pretty good reason to give it a little bit more attention, a little bit more love. I mention a part of the new book that helped me a little with my feelings of loss. Yeah, I'll read the passage. For better or worse, we live in a time of paradox and opportunity. This means that the following statements are equally true. Mankind has ruined nature. Mankind will be saved by nature. Nature is so big and complex and resilient, we couldn't kill nature if we tried our darndest. If we ever do kill it, then all right, nature is dead and long live nature, since it'll come right back as strange and glorious and powerful as ever. And that is not me just being rhetorical, although there's some nice rhetoric there, I guess. But that really is how I feel about it, that nature's astounding. And yeah, we're changed some stuff that we're probably going to regret more than anybody else. <laughs> but 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, nature will still be chugging along as interesting as always. I just want your listeners to come away with a sense of invitation. This is their birthright. Nature in general, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. You don't need any fancy tools. Just go to your park and just start letting it soak into your soul and if you want to have some flashlights have some flashlights and if you're good at walking with the flashlights off oh so much the better bring a friend maybe go to the hike during the daytime so you learn the route and then come back after dark but it's not scary it's not evil nothing's going to snatch you just relax and have a nice time it is our birthright to be out here You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nocturnalia by Charles Hood and Jose Gabriel Martinez Fonseca is a truly lovely book, filled with beautiful photos of animals and plants of the Western United States, along with very accessible writing conveying the endless curiosity and good humor of its authors. I'll provide a link for the book, as well as Wide Awake, the group that organized the night walk, at nocturnepodcast.org in the show notes for this episode. And just for a little teaser, within the next few months, we have an entire episode coming up with the grandfather of bat conservation, Merlin Tuttle. His stories about bats are truly breathtaking and heart-wrenching and inspiring, and I can't wait to share him with you. Till next time, be well, and thanks for listening. <laughs>